Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, recording from my office here in Mount Home, Tennessee. Uh, and thanks to the supporting sponsor of this Onco Farm podcast, the Bulgatin College of Pharmacy, where I am an associate professor. Uh, thanks for tuning in again or downloading and listening. Uh, today we're going to do a, a little debrief of last week's uh, annual HOPA, or Hematology Oncology Pharmacists Association, uh, conference. So, uh, you know, this is, these are the not necessarily the HOPA highlights, but the things that made me pause and say, oh, you know, that's something new that I didn't know. Uh, in some cases, this is a very, very specific detail within a disease state. In some cases, it's a relatively basic thing, like a drug I didn't know existed. It's kind of a bread and butter supportive care topic. So let's get right into it. And of course, uh, the best part about Hope Every Year is the networking. You know, you come away, you know, you make some new friends, you, you get a new twi- couple new Twitter followers, a new, uh, uh, you know, some new Facebook friends, you get to catch up with, uh, and this is the best part to see, former students and former trainees who are off doing things bigger and better uh, than what I've ever done. Uh, and that's always uh, a lot of fun to see, uh, see them and catch up and see how well everyone's doing. Now, you've all probably heard a story that goes something like this. A group of pharmacists are talking. They start out not talking about work, but suddenly conversation turns to work, and everyone's having a good time. And then somebody mentions a name, and this other person across the table, who maybe doesn't know that person who's telling the story, says, oh, I recognize that name. You know Billy? I know Billy. Oh, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pharmacies of small world stories. Um, and they happen everywhere where groups of pharmacists get together. It's even smaller uh, as the uh, as you get deeper into a specialty. So, for example, oncology pharmacy is a smaller world than pharmacy in general. Uh, so it's not surprising to come across people who have you know mutual acquaintances, mutual friends, mutual. Oh, I was trained by that person in, in college or in pharmacy school or in in residency. That's not uncommon. I saw something that has never happened before. Uh, possibly in the history of humankind, but at least in my history. And that is um, someone's telling a story, and they mention uh, a dog. And the person across the table who doesn't really know the person telling the story says, you know Pigeon? Yeah, I know Pigeon. How do you know? So they ended up, these people knew the same dog. I don't know why the dog was named Pigeon. Um, But I just, it struck me, this is how small pharmacy is or can be at times is people not just they don't just know each other or of each other they have mutual dog acquaintances uh so anyway let's get into some of the specific things that i learned uh, there's a great talk by one of my hope of friends uh julianne Orr from iu health uh talking about potential second line treatments for hepatocellular carcinoma uh, oh before i get into that I want to, i'm going to do this in chronological order there's an updates in renal cell carcinoma talk um Several, uh, you know, lots of options for use for renal cell carcinoma in the first line. We've highlighted some of these clinical trials on on, uh, on the podcast. Uh, but one of the things really struck me on one of the slides is that cabozantinib, uh, I think, quote, uh, potential for first line, uh, unquote, renal cell carcinoma treatment in those uh, that have intermediate or high risk disease and, quote, extensive bone meds. I'd never heard of treating somebody differently based on whether or not they had extensive bone meds or not. So cabozantinib is... Uh, narrowly, you can think of it as a VEGF inhibiting tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's a multi-kinase inhibitor. It also inhibits Axel. And I learned last year from HOPA that Axel, that pathway, is a potential source of uh, chemotherapy, or not chemotherapy, but renal cell carcinoma cells developing resistance to TKIs. And one of the reasons cabozantinib is really effective in the second line is because it inhibits Axel. It also inhibits MET. 
which is also a potential um, upregulated uh, marker of, of cell resist or uh, cancer resistance to first-line TKIs like with sunitinib. And MET is expressed in uh, osteoblasts and osteoclasts. And sure enough, if you go look at the Cabo Sun study, which was in 2017 in JCO, that compares cabozantinib to sunitinib. Uh, so Cabo Sun, not like Cabo Sun Lucas, but Cabo Sun, that's the name of the study. And it showed a small PFS benefit of cabozantinib versus sunitinib. Uh, you know, 8.2 months median overall, median PFS with Cabo versus 5.6 with sunitinib. P-value is 0.012. So statistically significant, but the kappa myocurves curves don't separate a whole lot. And then no benefit uh, for overall survival. The kappa myocurves curves overlap. Um, also, I'll point out that those who got subsequent anti-cancer treatment, there was more folks in the sunitinib group that went on to get second-line treatment than the cabozantinib group, which, you know, maybe would have erased any PFS benefit that cabo did have. However, when you look in the subgroup analysis and you separate patients out by whether or not they have bone mets or not, if they don't have bone mets, there's no, there was no difference in the subgroup analysis between PFS, between cabozantinib and sunitinib. 8.6 months versus 7.6 months, not statistically significant. If you look at those that have bone mets, they have a poor prognosis. So these PFS numbers are lower than if you don't have bone mets. But it, the PFS was almost twice as long with cabozantinib versus sunitinib. So 6.1 months compared to 3.38 months with sunitinib, a hazard ratio of 0.54 with a conference interval that does not cross one. Uh, so there is some clinical evidence to support this theory that cabozantinib is more effective than at least sunitinib, maybe other TKIs in treating patients that have bone mets, not even extensive bone mets, but any bone mets in this case. And that's something I'd never heard of. That's something that I'm gonna use and take back into practice next time I do see a renal cell carcinoma patient with those bone mets. Probably not great evidence-based medicine to make practice decisions based off of a subgroup analysis, uh, but we know even if you're wrong that CABO is at least as good as sunitinib in the first-line setting with regards to overall survival and does have that PFS benefit based on CABO sun. Okay, on to the second thing. Uh, we got six of these total. Uh, second thing, so uh, Julianne Orr's talk on second-line treatments of hepatocellular carcinoma you know, a couple of years ago, there was nothing. It was serafinib, and the second line was like, eh, what do we do? Now a whole bunch of stuff, right? And she walked walk through these very nicely. And I just kind of want to rant about uh, regorafinib here. Um, so uh, this was, regorafinib was FDA approved in the second line setting for hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, on April 27th, 2017. Uh, this is pre-Oncopharm before Oncopharm Pod exists, right? This is based on the, the resource study, which was published in January in Lancet, uh, January 2017. Now, here's, here's what really bugs me. The inclusion criteria for this study had to be patients who progressed on serafinib, that's fine, and tolerated it. And the specific tolerability criteria were you had to be able to take at least 400 milligrams a day for 20 of 28 days before stopping. Serafinib is really toxic. The normal dose is 400 twice a day, even though the landmark SHARP study, New England Journal of Medicine 2008, that's the study that established serafinib as you know, the first-line treatment for patients with, uh, with hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, while the study said that 76% received at least 80% of the planned drug, in, in the real world, that doesn't happen. And there's some data that, that support that. So for a second-line uh, trial to only register patients who tolerated the drug fairly well uh, he has a little cherry-picking, the healthiest of the healthy patients. Uh, another thing that I did not know is that regorafenib's bottle uh, has a seven-week expiration on it. 
Uh, and that, okay, you could say that's fine, you know. If that's what it needs to be, that's what it needs to be. The problem is uh, it comes in a 28-count bottle. These are 40-milligram tablets, and you have to take four of them for the initial dose. A lot of people will start patients at even a half dose. So let's say 80 milligrams, in which case you need two bottles to get, uh, you know, to get your... Uh, to get 80 milligrams for the dosing regimen of regorafen, which is 21 days on, one day off. So why are the bottle sizes not in a 21 count instead of a 28 day count, especially if you've got a vial that has to be used within seven weeks, or you know, it just is gonna end up with patients wasting drug potentially. So, uh, you know, you gotta have a dosage form that's divisible by 21, and that just, you know, the math just doesn't work with a 28 count bottle. Never realize that. Those of you who work in specialty pharmacy are probably aware of this and probably bemoan this to the drug company uh, in your sleep, perhaps. Third thing, something that I saw uh, several months ago is a patient who got a hematopoietic stem cell transplant at a, at a tertiary referral center, came back to our little secondary referral center uh, with a recommendation for low dose azacitidine. Uh, and low dose in this case was, uh, was like 40 milligrams per meter squared. You, you know, it's about half the dose of the MDS dosing of azacitidine, which is 75 milligrams per meter squared a day for seven days. So if this was like 40 milligrams per meter squared, a day for five days, and you go in your, your favorite drug information resource, you don't see this dosing anywhere, and you just think the tertiary referral center is making this up. Well, they're not. So was presented with some evidence uh, that was fairly compelling uh, at preventing relapse in these patients after transplant, and the rationale for this low dose is not for the cytotoxic effects, or even the DNA, or the, sorry, not for the cytotoxic effects of azacitidine or decitabine, but because uh, based on its hypomethylation at this lower dose, you can actually enhance the cytotoxic T-cell effect to try and stimulate a graft-versus-leukemia effect, which is why we're able to cure some patients with allogeneic stem cell transplants. Fourth thing I learned, and this is hard to admit, there is a sub-Q, like sustained-release granisetron formulation that's been approved for a while that I didn't know about. Uh, it's called Sustol. Uh, so it's uh, it's a 10 milligram sub-Q injection of granisetron in a sustained release polymer. And that gives the drug about a 24 hour half-life, which means it lasts for about a week. In fact, you cannot give it any more frequently than every seven, 10 days. Uh, so again, a 24 hour half-life, you give the drug 30 minutes before the chemo and you get an immediate peak or immediate absorption of that sub-Q dose. And then the drug in the polymer slowly releases with the concentration peaking at 12 hours. Um, so when you look at the cost, maybe this makes sense for your institution. Probably not. Uh, it does require a warming pouch to come to room temperature, so the sub-Q injection is more comfortable. It has to be removed from uh, refrigeration 60 minutes prior to removal. Uh, and because it is a polymer, uh, sub-Q injection, it's kind of hard uh, not hard, but it's not easy to inject, so it takes like 30 seconds to actually inject it because uh, it's like injecting goo, so to speak. Uh, fifth thing I learned, this is from Donald Harvey's talk, and Donald Harvey is the phase one director at, uh, at Emory, I believe, in Atlanta. So he's a pharmacist, and he directs, he's the director of the phase one clinical trial program. So so whenever I hear him talk, I always, always uh, you know, uh, try to get a maybe a fifth row seat, not a front row seat, but, but not sitting in the back to hear him talk. And he spoke about the compassionate use or maybe better characterize the right to try laws. Very wonderful talk, can't summarize it all here. One thing that he said that was encouraging is that now adults, uh, adult cancer patients, about 8% of them are enrolled on clinical trials, up from 3% uh, 
which is kind of the historical number. Uh, for pediatrics, that number is a lot higher. And it would be wonderful if we had more and more adults enrolled on clinical trials. Uh, one, they probably get a little bit better care on a clinical trial than not on a clinical trial. Two, we learn more as a society. Everybody benefits. Um, so those are the five big things that I learned. It's kind of new to me. Wanted to share with you. The sixth one hopefully will be of interest to some of you, and that is HOPA membership is now free for students. I think before it was $40 a year. Students now it's free. Uh, it's a great way to get involved. There's going to be some increase from what uh, was said at the conference as far as offerings for students. That could include very soon uh, beyond free membership to HOPA, but also the opportunity to serve on committees, That's, and that committee service uh, would be true of both students and residents potentially. Great way to get involved in HOPA. It's a wonderful organization, uh, and it's useful for, for those of us who, who, who serve on committees to hear from students and trainees and those coming about what maybe they'd like to hear HOPA do for student and resident education and offerings. Uh, and if you are looking for, say, a competitive job like a residency, it's a great thing to be able to put on your CV, which never hurts. And you'll get to start one of the best parts about HOPA, which is networking. So there's my plug, whether you are a student here or maybe you're a clinician, uh, you know, not in the United States, uh, consider joining HOPA. It's a great organization, a lot of good CE offerings, and uh, the conference is a lot of blast. The annual meeting is a lot of blast every year. Next year it's in Tampa, Florida. So hopefully I will see some of you all there. Thank you to those of you who listened, who came up to me and said, uh, you know, that you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, that's that's wonderful to hear, and thank you uh, for listening. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you would f- uh, find uh, the podcast in the iTunes store. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a nice review. Tell us what you would like to hear more of. You can also follow the podcast on Stitcher and Google Play. You can follow me on Twitter at OncoFarmPod. Uh, follow the podcast. You can follow me at FarmDeepNib, the podcast at OncoFarmPod, which is also where you find me on Insta. Uh, and until I see you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.